Bonjour, mon amour. And welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they can go from running code and early computers to describing complex weather systems, or that they find it extra handy to know just a few fishing facts in Wisconsin, or that they can keep burning their mouth because they just can't wait for the cinnamon tea to be done steeping. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, Remember when I mentioned that old Patreon account we have, which supports the podcast? Well, it's still there to collect your money. The funds pay for sharing the podcast to the world. Helps us get to festivals to tell kids they can be actors and scientists, which actually did happen, and helps the Deeper Than Data team keep learning. A link to our Patreon is in the show notes. Also, FYI, this interview was recorded in September, so you may notice the upcoming holidays mentioned in the episode are now past. You may also notice that I have a cold now. I happily boosted my COVID immunity recently, but those little old colds, they'll get you. Anyways, today's guest is a thoughtful community crafter, science communicator, and thinks deeply about connecting subjects that don't always seem to be connected. Plus, his participation in the improv game at the end is A-plus work. Let's get to the interview with Encore Desai. and thank you for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's Friday afternoon. What else can you be? And it's sunny. It's a nice temperature outside. It's pretty amazing. First things first, can I get you to say your name and the pronouns you use? My name is Ankur Desai. I use he, him, his pronouns. If anyone was going to bump into you on the street, what might you look like today? I'm pretty average looking guy, six foot tall, uh, uh, American, but of Asian Indian heritage. So you might see a little brown skin on me, kind of changes from summer to winter, but, uh, and I'm probably would bump into me most likely on my bike because that's how I mostly get around this town. Nice. Are you a winter biker? I'm a year round biker. I started, uh, winter biking back when I was a graduate student in Minneapolis. Um, and that certainly was a, um, entering the deep end of the pool of winter biking for sure. Uh, but I really enjoy, it's kind of an excuse to get outside as much as anything. And given how much I'm not a fan of dealing with parking lots and paying for parking and all the other things that come with driving. And now that I only live a mile from my office, um, I really have no excuse not to. Do you have a nice fat tire bike or spikes for the winter? I have a collection of bikes. Actually, I counted in my garage with the kids and my bikes. There's now like nine or 10. I just got rid of one. But I have my commuter bike, which has like a one inch tire on it that gets by for the most part in most conditions. I'm cold doesn't bother me, but ice I'll avoid. Uh, but I also have a mountain bike and a road bike because, you know, you can't have enough. Yes. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm also a winter biker. And oftentimes, at least around Madison, we'll feel safer biking than walking around. Those fat tires, or I, I got spikes too. And it's like, I, I don't have that on my shoes. I mean, I think everyone's got their story of having spilled, but it's, it's also 
relatively safe around here. And it's great to see a community of winter bikers because, you know, the bike paths are plowed pretty uh, quickly on average and you're not the only one out there kind of looking crazy. And of course, back when my kids were little, the towing them into trailer, getting them to preschool and look like you're this weird, uh, abominable snowman, uh, uh, pulling a sleigh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Are there any identities you'd like to highlight about yourself? Um, so I mentioned one earlier on, which is that uh, I, my parents uh, came here from India. And uh, so I do have that Asian Indian heritage. Uh, I grew up in southern New Jersey. And in New Jersey, it's a big deal for which side of the state you're from. Exit 36 so is part of my identity. And uh, I'm also uh, in a blended family. And, and so my wife is of European and German heritage. Uh, and we are... Uh, raising a Jewish family. Oh, fantastic. I love that mixing. Probably um, some pretty cool events, I would imagine, having at your household. Yeah, we get to have all the good parts of all of our traditions. And so this week is actually uh, the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, which is a really fun holiday. We build huts in the backyard, temporary shelters. And the main thing that we do there is have people over for meals. And so immediately after this um, chat, we'll be heading home and uh, baking a bunch of mini pumpkins to feed um, my youngest daughter's Hebrew school class. That sounds so lovely. It's going to be fun. I hope. <laughs> I wish I was invited. I'm going to go camping after this, but next time, next year. That's right. We'll, we'll do that. We'll invite you to the fun, uh, the evening hangouts with, uh, or break out the scotch and stuff, you know. <laughs> I also, I love pumpkins too. So it's just a soft spot. Anything pumpkin, I'm there. Um, and then lastly, what are your positions and roles on UW-Madison's campus? So I've... Uh, been on the faculty here in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences. This is year 14. Um, so I'm now a full professor, uh, not full of it, just full. And uh, I'm also, as of a month ago, the department chair, uh, which has been a fun deep dive into a lot of personnel and budgeting. And I also have a um, honorary title right now. So I'm the Reed Bryson Professor of Climate, People, and the Environment. And that's bestowed on me by the uh, Center for Climatic Research, which is a center at the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies uh, that I'm also a core affiliate of. Um, and then I also have some affiliations in civil and environmental engineering, freshwater and marine science, uh, and the Environment and Resources Program mostly because I have students in my lab who do a whole variety of research and we send them through the graduate programs that make the best sense for them. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons I was really interested in talking to you too, is it's a big systems level approach and I feel usually people like their silos and you're at the forefront of smashing everything together and probably doing some complicated stuff, but also extremely interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting. I hope you do too. But um, it's really a mix what we try to do in this lab, right? We're trying to understand how weather and climate and ecosystems on the ground talk to each other. And a lot of what I view my role in is not so much being the really, really deep expert in any one little piece of that, whether that's studying, you know, the physiology of a grass or understanding the dynamics of a cloud, but really the translator 
between those. And my favorite projects are when I have a room with a microbial ecologist and a fluid dynamicist uh, and a hydrologist. You know, it's almost the start of the joke. Um, and we and it's fun to see different fields and how they interact and how they think about a problem. And a lot of what I have become, I think, good at has been bringing those people in a room and trying to under and unknowing a little bit about each of their languages and being able to get people to talk to each other in a way that we can answer questions that haven't been been answerable before. Yes. I love that mindset. And I feel I'm right there. Um, if I had to identify myself as an animal, I would go with crow, um, okay. because they're, they're good generalists, you know, they're pretty social. They're kind of everywhere. They're not specialized for surviving any sort of one thing, but they can navigate through a lot of different fields. And I feel like I've done that in my research and path too. I love being the connector and knowing just a little bit of everything just to say like, oh, you geologist, you should talk to plant pathophysiologist and how everything interacts. So we will get to your current position, but we have to do our first uh, deep dive back into time. And this is my, perhaps my favorite question to ask everyone. Um, who was your first crush? Ooh, good question. Um, crush is a funny word. You know, it, it's it's a, a word. I, you know, I, I, if I jog into my deep memories, I certainly remember having my, my first friend who was of and somebody who is cisgendered straight, who was opposite gender of mine or, or a woman, uh, something like second grade or something like that. I don't even remember her name. Um, I do remember, you know, in terms of actual post-puberty hormone world of crushes, and I remember a cheerleader in eighth grade. Uh, I was a very nerdy computer nerd boy with big glasses and a sweater vest and I somehow got the nerve to call her and ask her out. Nicely done. And was then immediately made fun of by the whole middle school the next day. So, oh, no. so, so those are those memories in middle school that just don't ever go away, do they? Uh, that would probably be my first real crush. Was there uh, any more story to that besides just kind of the rejection? Was there an ever will they, won't they scenario or just like firm? Oh, no. no. I mean... I, I don't, I don't think it went anywhere. I was not very, uh, good at that whole crush and dating scene through middle and high school. Things changed a lot in college. Um, and that was a nice, uh, change of pace. Did you have like moves in college? Cause you're saying like, that was a nice change of pace. I can see you being pretty smooth. No, I, I, no, I don't think so. Other than if I had long hair and tie-dyed shirts and played the guitar that was somehow attractive but um no some of it was just being in a different place with more of my people right i went to a small liberal arts school full of artsy nerdy people who um had a lot of similar passions and interests and lots of late night chat sessions and hanging out. And some of my best friends uh, still today come from the folks I met in my first week as a freshman in undergrad. Nice. Yeah. And you went to Oberlin. Yep. I, my small interaction with Oberlin, um, I did a week long electronic music camp there. Okay. And yes. loved it. So I was going to see how did you enjoy being on that small campus, which is a sizable comparison, 
and difference now that you're on UW's campus. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, it is a school that's almost as small as uh, the high school that my kid goes to right now in West High, about 25, 2,600 students, about 300, 400 of those in the music school that is particularly well-known, the conservatory. Um, you know, it's a very intense place when you're into somewhere that small for four years. So it's kind of like summer camp that never ended. Um, that comes with pros and cons. It comes with intense navel gazing. And so when things blow up on campus, uh, they become big issues, even though nobody else outside of that world cares about it. It was also a relatively remote location. It was in a town of 8,000, about 45 minutes from Cleveland. And at least when I went to school, it was still relatively rural in the surrounding areas, Lorain County. Um, but since then, it's become more suburbanized and developed. But so maybe it's different now. Uh, I really liked, it was a school of students who had a deep appreciation for intellectual debate. And so it was nice to have people who cared about things. And, and, and there's certainly plenty of that here as well. It was just kind of an intense place to be for that. Oberlin has a, has a interesting fact about it, which is that despite it being a small school, it produces more undergraduates who later go on to get PhDs than just about any school of any size. So it's somewhere in the top rankings, like top three or four. So, so even though Madison has 40,000 students, you end up with more PhDs. And it's funny on this campus, how many Oberlin PhDs you could, I've run into uh, who are on the faculty. We used to joke it was because this was a school that trained nobody for any practical jobs. Um, but some of it is also that it does attract people who really just love learning. Um, and for me, actually, what I really loved about that school was as, as much to, you know, small classes and things as it was the uh, cooperative housing and dining system and learning to live and eat together with people. Yeah, it seems like you've been able to carry on that tradition to modern times. And one of the things that made me really interested in talking to you um, when I was doing my research, looking at your website, it always seemed like you had a very communal aspect to your lab and uh, just events, which I, I really love. I really love. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I really feel that, um, you know, especially in the sciences, we run these labs where we have students and staff and postdocs coming through for two to five or six years and sometimes long-term staff members like my lab manager, who's been with me since I started. And it really is a family. Right. And, and even though we're all co-workers and we're, you know, have, have all of those aspects of our lives as well, we are, you know, but it's fun to see graduate students in particular, see their lives go. A lot of things happen to most people in their 20s and 30s. And so um, it's great. I get to be older, but everyone around me stays the same age and I get to still see people have get married and have babies and do all that fun part of their personal life. And so I think it's important to think of it like a family, like there's appropriate distance, which is important as well. Everyone should have their own lives and, and not be completely intertwined. But um, it's useful to just know that, you know, we all look out for each other. Yeah, they're like quasi kids in some sort of way. Like you're going to yeah. be very proud, but you won't know yeah. everything. Somewhere about between sure. toddlers and uh, uh, rebellious teens, I suppose. Well, speaking of rebellious teens and toddlers, did you start getting interested in science, perhaps like in between that range? And I'm, I'm curious too, especially now with the, 
your really large system approach to meteorology, geography, I would guess it's probably a harder for a kid to wrap their head around um, versus for me playing in mud pits, you know, playing with bugs. It's right there in front of me. Um, but did you start getting interested in like the large systems approaches when young or did that come later on? That's a good question. I, I don't think I could go back to young me at any point in time and say, hey, do you like systems approaches? They'd probably run away from the creepy guy that was trying to talk to me. but. I certainly had some inklings of wanting to understand Earth um, as part of my interest. Now, I, I did mention that my first interest was actually in computers. I was eight years old when I got my, you know, 64 kilobyte Commodore 64 that you turned on. And the first thing you had to do was program it. And in some ways, programming computers is kind of this nice mix of having to understand all of the details, but to make the whole thing work, it's all about abstraction right? You build these little functions that do very specific things, and then you have to put them all together in some coherent way to actually make the program have the space alien go across the screen or whatever it is we were trying to do back when we used to type programs out of magazines we would get in the mail. Um, but the earth part came to me. My parents were not outdoorsy people. They, they immigrated from India and they were happy to have you know, a nice roof over their heads and make a life for themselves in a way they couldn't uh, before. And I liked, uh, so, but they were very, it was very important for them for me to kind of fit in uh, with the community and culture. So they enrolled me early on in scouting. And I, you know, went through all of it all the way through the end. I'm an Eagle Scout. Um, and there is a lot of out, our troop, uh, when I was growing up, did a lot of outdoor activities. And I really appreciated that. We did some backpacking trips. We did some camping trips, biking trips. And part of working on that, and as well as all of those wacky little merit badges, uh, was really, you know, having appreciation for a lot of different topics, especially science topics in earth science, in weather, in plants. Uh, and just knowing each of those pieces probably gave me some of that uh, appreciation that later on might have come back when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life in graduate school. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And after Oberlin, did you feel like you had a clear vision of what you wanted to pursue a bit more? No. <laughs> um, uh, no, I told you the school is not uh, known for their, <laughs> uh, uh, kind of really getting people into careers per se. So I came into Oberlin to do computer science and, and, and within the first semester grew a little disillusioned with the idea of doing only computer science. Um, and, and, and so when I was bopping around majors and I think I looked at everything from double majoring in classical guitar to philosophy, to history, uh, to finding this relatively newer major in environmental studies. And that fit me just well because it had this very large breadth and it required half natural science, half social sciences uh, in class work. And in particular, I was enamored with the geology classes because they took field trips and got to go places not in town. And so I took several geology classes and ended up having a co-advisor there. Um, and, and that really got me interested in the earth system at some point. And later on, they actually did an experimental class uh, where they had five faculty from geology, chemistry, and economics. 
teach a course on climate change. Um, that was kind of the first time I ever kind of got exposed to that topic formally. Uh, this was in the late mid-1990s, so still a relatively new topic to cover in the classroom, at least in the way that we teach it today. The more that I've learned about climate change, it's like we've just known about it for so long. And I would just imagine the class you were taking in like the 1990s, just the warnings like, hey, we should do something about this. is still going on right now, which must be a little frustrating. Um, I think people are realizing it. Oh, like this is really going to have impacts. It's not necessarily whether you believe in it. It's when I think you'll believe in it. Um, but yeah, is that, is that frustrating at all? Just to see those parallels like almost... 30 years yeah. later, maybe at this There's point? There's a little bit of a, is this Mike still on kind of moment as a scientist and a climate scientist. But I, I'm generally optimistic, and I try to relay that message to most people when I give talks about climate change, global warming to the public or in the classroom. Because you're absolutely right. Like, despite how you might hear about it in the media as a relatively divided and polarized topic, when you actually look at surveys of people, the vast majority of them are concerned. The majority of them accept the science and accept the human contribution to it. And most of them are really kind of stuck a little bit about what to do about it. And a lot of folks are kind of hesitant to talk to each other about it, which tends to limit a lot of action. And so those are just the, you know, the, the rough stories that, that we hear from folks who survey and folks who study um, you know, human behavior and policy. And the other thing I see, though, right, of one is there is definitely a generational shift in how much climate change, which is going to affect college student age people far more than it is, say, generations above them about it. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that there's things going on. And at the same time, we're seeing a sea of innovation uh, in energy uh, in carbon storage in natural climate solutions and Everywhere I turned, there's something going on. And yeah, not all of these are going to pan out. Some of these are going to require a good bit of government intervention to be able to scale up to something that actually makes a dent on climate. But there's things out there. And in general, right? Yeah, you're right. The science is old. Actually, it goes all the way back to the middle of the 19th century um, in terms of the first articles, the first demonstrations that demonstrated how uh, greenhouse gases exist and how those are can be emitted by burning fossil fuels and how those change climate. Um, we basically knew how this stuff worked by before the turn of the 20th century and really spent the 1930s and 50s kind of really fine-tuning a lot of that science. And then it was the 1960s or the 80s that the computer models really allowed us to make realistic projections about the future and options. Yeah, and I've I've talked to uh, Greg Nemet, not for this podcast, but for the podcast we make for the, for the University of the Badger Talks podcast, and he was also very hopeful about climate change, citing you know solar prices getting cheaper, winds getting cheaper. Um, there's actually like money that you can make from it now too, and it's also beneficial. So yeah, it's. In a weird way, as I have thought about the transition to my next career step, so as I should be, fingers crossed, graduating at the end of spring next year, um, have thought about where to go, and climate change is a factor that I have thought about, which I never... Where 
where he lived. But if not, yeah. And Madison is a pretty solid place um, yeah, as far yeah. as getting hit. Middle of uh, continents, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I actually wanted to go back to say or see when you were mentioning field trips, did you go to some pretty interesting places? Yeah, so I mean, we were in Ohio, which isn't the most interesting uh, geologically, although as I think our geology professor said, everything, uh, all the awesome things in Ohio are holes in the ground, which is true, quarries and and areas like that. And there are some really pretty places once you get off the highway. Um, we would head out to West Virginia, Maryland, uh, that area down there. I think we did a couple trips, if I remember correctly. And those were locations that have, you know, these great outcrops where you can really look at the sedimentary records. You can see how earth dynamics have shaped in the earth, but you can also look at the history of um, the environment and read the stories of climate uh, through that record. It's not something I do today in my work, but I certainly appreciate the work that goes into the stories told of the past inform how we work in the future. Yes. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned the holes in the ground in Ohio. So I was born in Cincinnati and then grew up there. So similar, uh, I spent a lot of time in the holes in the ground that also have water over them, AKA creeks. And so we was just digging up rocks and seeing all the different fossils. Um, but also the, the Eastern part of Ohio has some beautiful hills and almost mountains. I feel I, like. I, You know, I've now traveled to 49 of the 50 States and I've spent some time in each Mississippi is going to have to wait. Um, and there's, you know, one of the things I think is sad is that if you cross the state on the interstate, you miss just about every good part of any state. Um, recently, my wife and I have decided to um, try to tackle finding the highest point in each state. You can actually join this club, called, or it's not really a club, but you can jump follow this website called the High Pointers Club, where people try to sign logbooks in the high point of every state. And yeah, the obvious, the obvious high points, Denali, whatever, fine. I'm not climbing that anytime in probably my lifetime. But the subtle ones, like the highest point in Illinois um, or other things like that, are really interesting places. And they often get you off the beaten path into small towns and interesting landscapes. And really kind of just points out that no matter where you are, there's just, you know, the environment has a story to tell and it's often can be subtle, but it's usually still really cool. And I'm probably going to steal that idea from you. I, I really like that. Cause I'm just thinking Wisconsin's high point is interesting. I did the same thing uh, when I was doing AmeriCorps down in Arkansas and it does take you to some really cool places. I would wager most of the time around parks and small towns too. Um, and like you said, off the interstate. So you really get to see like the culture of that place. Um, when you were in graduate school, did you also go on to some interesting trips? Not so. So I started my master's degree at the University of Minnesota in geography. And at that point, it was mostly um, doing some data analysis on existing experiments that were collected in Oklahoma. Uh, but at the time, my PhD advisor was setting up some, or my master's advisor at the time, was setting up some uh, experiments in northern Wisconsin, experiments that I now still run today. Uh, and so I remember going on a trip with uh, him, his spouse, and his three kids uh, all crammed into a minivan and me just kind of 
lanky, uh, quiet, uh, graduate, new, brand new graduate student. And kind of, uh, it was, and we went up to the field station at the University of Wisconsin runs up uh, in Manapa Woodruff area. And we spent some time. And I remember going to the Wisconsin Concrete Park, which is a fascinating uh, sculpture park full of concrete beer bottles, soldiers, and other peoples uh, created by this one person in his life. Uh, it's in Phelps, Wisconsin, I believe. And then, but I, I remember just seeing the forests and really kind of understanding that this was a landscape up here in the North Woods that is um, really a special place. It's also a sacred place. It's also a place that supports a lot of people's livelihoods and thinking a lot about understanding how climate change is affecting this forest uh, kind of got me initially started in thinking about that. Later on, when I did my PhD at Penn State, I basically followed my advisor who was in Minnesota. He moved to Penn State. And after a year of, of not doing that and deciding I didn't want to live in central PA, we did come out. And um, I got uh, involved in a couple of field projects, and, and the first one was in Oklahoma back again. So meteorologists love Oklahoma um, because it has a lot of severe weather. And so in a very strange thing where most people talk about going to Oklahoma with not a lot of excitement in their voice, uh, meteorologists do. Uh, and I got to spend a few weeks uh, basically on small aircraft, uh, kind of flying back and forth over different parts of Oklahoma, looking at how convection or mixing in the air develops, right, in advance of storms. And the work that we were doing is primarily looking at how different landscapes kind of promote more or less convection and how changes in soil moisture drive that as well by basically shooting a laser out of the plane that tells you the uh, amount of uh, aerosols in the air, which tells you how deep the mixing is. And then using another microwave beam that's shooting at the ground that's telling you how wet the ground is. So fun toys. I was again, a very naive and early career graduate student at the time. And my advisor left me there on my own. Uh, and, and I was I actually, somehow I ended up in charge of a couple of the mission days and, and, and that was a little terrifying, but it was also a really good experience, experience of like having to tell these pile of 30, 40 people where to go and where these airplanes need to go. And, how we were going to make something useful out of based on the weather that we were staring at at five in the morning, making our plans for the day, uh, going to go. Yeah. Having a, a gig where you're often up in planes shooting lasers out of them. Sounds pretty cool. It, it's, that's, it's, it, you know, I love field work. Um, I don't get to do as much of it now as I wished I could, but it's certainly, there's something nice about being an atmospheric scientist, which is that your subject, your object of study is there all the time outside and easy, relatively easy to access. And we have these opportunities in our field. We're very driven by these so-called intensive field campaigns where we get a whole bunch of scientists and a whole bunch of different ways to measure the atmosphere and the surroundings together and get some funding from some agency to do that. And then we show up somewhere and we hope that the weather is what we hypothesized is what we needed. And then we try to make inferences from a very large num number of measurements that some of which, yeah, sound very space age and others of which are like very old school and involve duct tape and, you know, string. 
I was going to ask you this too. Um, so on your website, there's a few photos of you looking out from really high towers and forests. And I was thinking, how do you view fields and forests? Because I'm imagining in your head, you are thinking of that convection with like forests or fields of crops. There's, especially if it's sunny, you know, a lot of transpiration, a lot of moisture going up. And that can be sometimes just enough moisture, hot, warm air rising to create clouds and perhaps thunderstorms, but you can't always see it. So yeah, if you're, you have a really gorgeous view over something and you're plotting, maybe you're hypothesizing about like what weather could happen, like what's, what's running through your head at the moment? Mm -hmm. So you brought up something, which is, yeah, we do operate some of these towers, uh, throughout, uh, Okay, I'll lower the place, but most recently, you know, for my longest running ones in northern Wisconsin and UP of Michigan. And I am a, or was a safety certified tower climber. Uh, now I let my lab manager do most of that work. But there are actually ways to see, like one of the best parts of being on a tower and looking out at a landscape is really, yeah, seeing all those pieces together at the same time, right? And I mean, you see the trees and you see them rustling and you can, you know, kind of get a sense of their photosynthesis and transpiration going on. You can see the clouds developing. Um, there are ways to see, actually. I remember one year we actually brought out a, we did a workshop up north and we brought uh, some uh, old smoke bombs that somebody found uh, in their lab. And we went up to the top of the tower and just released them. And then we let the students on the ground walk and chase them. And we did this at sunrise. So you could kind of watch as the sun was coming up. Initially, the smoke traces of the plumes are going to be really, really flat and calm because the air is what we call stable or stratified. And so what's happening below the canopy of a forest and what's happening above are decoupled. They're completely separate. The forest is not really talking to the air. But as soon as the sun comes up, you start to see little wiggles in the smoke. And then the smoke starts generating what we call smoke is starting to represent the turbulence that's happening around as the sun is heating the ground and the ground is heating the air and that slightly warmer and less dense air starts to rise and form what we call eddies. And I remember just being out there at the forest and we're running around being like, I see W prime, W prime, which is the variable that we use in, in the turbulent equations of fluid mechanics to uh, describe vertical mixing. Um, so it's, it's so there, there, those are things I look and think about when I'm out in the woods. Yeah. In my, in my last year of undergrad, I took a meteorology class. I think it was just like a, you know, your general meteorology and climatology class then went to climate sciences. And then when I was doing my master's of public health, just asked someone if I could sit in on a synoptic meteorology class for fun. Um, and we we got into those equations. Like, I don't know how to do any of this, but I love that I'm like really thinking about how all this air is moving together. And it was really fun just to think like I'm kind of predicting the future, you know, based on this math and equation. It is pretty amazing what we can do in meteorology and particularly with weather forecasting, uh, which isn't my area of expertise, but certainly that's not what my neighbors think for sure. <laughs> so, uh, but it, but it, there is some cool stuff. And you, you, so you've definitely been someone also who's kind of jumped around a few career, uh, different topics and brought them together. Uh, so that's pretty cool too. So yes, back when I started my master's uh, public health, um, 
you know, people would ask like, okay, like, what are you interested in doing? And I was like, I think when I was taking, especially like the climatology class, it's like, I think there's going to be a really good intersection between public health and climate change. And people were like, I don't know <laughs> about that. And now it's huge. Um, but I'll let those people handle it. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's hard to pick one thing. And I know, like, I think that's where I struggled in going down the science avenue is oftentimes you do have to narrow. Um, but the chances that I have to dip into other different types of sciences or careers, like I'll take that chance. Um, and I'm sure, you know, like in your career too, if you start having these people that come from the different silos talking, you get bold new ideas. Yeah, and it, it very much is a process, right? You, you kind of come in and out of narrow and broad, right? You do need to develop expertise as a, you know, budding scientist in something. And you need to be able to make your mark there and then kind of come out and see the whole say, field and how things connect and then maybe come back in in a different direction. And that's kind of the best, you know, to, when science is done right and properly in terms of a career, um, you have those opportunities to do so. And it's always, of course, a problem when people get stuck in a place. And, and that's something that I, I do worry about now and then. Um, but, but one of the best things about being a faculty at a place like University of Wisconsin that really values you know, uh, collaboration really values research, innovation, working with students uh, on those is that we have these opportunities uh, frequently enough to kind of get into a problem and go down deep into some puzzle and come back out with either a neat finding or a finding that this was a waste of time, then move on to the next thing and kind of build that next piece. That's fine. Yes. Yeah. And a, another part too, that Wisconsin really instills, which I, I also really love is the Wisconsin idea. So getting our research out in the communities that really need it. And I think you've been a big champion of that. Um, so I wanted to talk about your outreach efforts and really like how you got started. Um, and I'll use this as a transition. I'm realizing like in our, in our journey of you, we are still at graduate school. No. So <laughs> um, I'm going to use this. Like, did you start doing a lot of outreach in graduate school and then carry that with you into your different faculty positions? I did do a little. So I, some of it comes from my relative trouble with saying no to things, which, but, you know, a little bit of that is healthy because it's okay to occasionally kind of push yourself into a couple different things that you maybe didn't initially think you'd really be excited about and discover so there were a couple opportunities I had. I remember in during my PhDs, there was a opportunity sponsored by NASA to kind of essentially run a Q&A forum, pen pal type thing with a middle school uh, group. And, and I remember just helping kids answer questions about weather and climate. And, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I also had some opportunities, yeah, to do demonstrations and things like that. Uh, with groups. So certainly when you're working out in the field, right, some of it also just came about, I was doing field work and you would run into, say, a deer hunter and they're looking at your tower, thinking first, I wonder if I could climb that too to get a better vantage point. The answer is no. But then asking what's going on around here and getting, being able to distill, you know, a very complicated topic about turbulent fluid mechanics and the carbon cycle to something that, you know, can be connected with to by somebody else. Um, turned me on to this idea that, you know, what I do matters. 
and that we can be better as scientists in trying to make that case. And so I've always kind of valued that part and I'm, you know, a big fan of science communication techniques. I'm a big supporter of my graduate students and undergraduate students kind of really focusing as much on the quantitative equation side of our world as on the explaining what you did and how you did it inside of the world. And that I view writing in many ways more important than your ability to kind of magically derive equations. Yeah. And like you said, it's a push and pull before because sometimes you really have to crank into the hard coding decoupling like the data to see what's going on and then your next job is to spread it out in the field uh and i would i'm actually curious if you agree with this so we've had someone on here uh brian dewsbury he does research on the education of biology so he's seeing how people can learn biology and probably take some of those same cores to biology different to different sciences um, and he has said uh, on this podcast that has stuck with me is that whether we like to admit it or not, whenever we are giving talks, we are indeed performing. We in science just choose to suck at it. And I think <laughs> science has gotten this kind of uh, escape just to say, like, I have facts and clues. It's everyone else's fault if you're not paying attention. But I would wager um, you might disagree with just, uh, we've got facts and therefore we're okay, no matter what we talk about. Yeah, I mean, I'm also motivated by several studies that show how people respond to polarized topics. There is a, a group at Yale University that's studied this in a couple different topics and they have this whole website on, uh, on, on communication topics. And so they study things like gun control and abortion and evolution and vaccines and climate change, places where at least from a perception or you know a debate side of things, there tends to be camps. And one of the things that those studies have shown is that if you don't trust the person who's telling you something and they tell you something that's opposite your pre-existing belief about that topic, you actually reinforce your pre-existing belief. You don't actually then come to that person's side. And that really part of our job as communicators is first and foremost, kind of building that common connection, building that trust or finding the person or the, or the translator or the, the group that kind of builds that uh, common ground among people. Um, and it, it certainly has influenced how I give talks to the public, maybe even in the classroom some. Because, you know, of course, I'm not trying to push a view. That's not, I'm a scientist trying to present curiosities about the world, but I still have to find what is the entry point that somebody is going to want to keep up with me for the next 45 minutes or however long our discussion is going to be and come out with something and be like, huh, that's cool. I didn't know that before. Or I'm going to tell my friends about it. And you know, it, it, it takes a little bit of, of finding out and, and sometimes it's useful to have a few different points, right? So obviously in Wisconsin, it, it never hurts to know a thing or two about things like fishing, right? If you're talking about climate change or things like, um, you know, winter recreation and snowmobiling and cross-country skiing. And so there are ways that, you know, for me to spend a little bit of effort to learn and to understand that me being the sage on the stage is not 
the model that works. It's really a two-way street. And as much as I want to learn from the people that have come to say, learn from me. It's fun. And, and you know, part of being with this, uh, the Badger Talks series that the UW Alumni Association helps bring uh, faculty and researchers at UW-Madison out across the state uh, to give talks or presentations. Um, it's, it's, that's been really fun to just go to different communities, find out what are things people care about here, and try to find out how that links to these larger global issues of climate change that we think about. Yeah. And I think that list of faculty on the Badger Talks, not only, you know, brilliant people, they're doing a lot of cool stuff, but they're people that you actually want to hang out with, too. And I think that's a good indication of trust if if you'd want to hang out with them or not. So it's like, yeah, they're cool people that I would I would go have a little pumpkin celebration with um, and then later on also talk to them about meteorology and climate change see i have a beer with test or something that uh, politicians really like i mean they they can take that a little too far i think too but but no i I get what you're saying i think about that in the classroom too right because we also know that effective learning occurs when everybody in the classroom feels like they're part of a community of learners and that is not just as one person spewing out facts that you're rapidly writing down on notes. But I do like to think of the classroom sometimes as you brought up the earlier analogy of, you know, your on performance or whatever. Um, that it is a little bit like a theater production or, or somewhere between that and a uh, improv comedy live TV show. Uh, and so I, I kind of, I kind of use those in my head that it matters, not just what you say, but how you say it, where you say it, it matters even little things like where you pause and if you start and end on time and, and timing matters. And so I try to bring that in, not so much that I'm the entertainer and my job is to entertain students, but really that um, little things matter a lot uh, in terms of how learning happens in a classroom and being mindful of those as much as the content that you want to cover makes for a much better classroom experience for everyone. And speaking of improv and being on time, um, oddly enough, we're uh, like we're running out of time because it's yeah, it's flown by. And I want to make sure I get uh, at least one open ended question question for you before we get to that, too. You you can either agree or disagree with me. So you did grad school. You started um, uh, some faculty positions. Now you're here at Madison. Pretty good time. Yes, absolutely. The nice summary to just make sure we get to where you are right now. Um, okay, my last question for you, because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot the past week or two. Um, do you want to leave a legacy of any sort? I feel like a legacy is a little too egotistical, right? Like, I want my science to stand the test of time until somebody else proves something better. Um, I want that to go through to students and I want to hopefully know that we were a lab that, you know, supported good ideas and led to people doing good things after they came out of this lab. But that that's as much as I care about it. I try very hard, you know, we, at some level, as faculty, we're kind of a one man PR show sometimes and one person PR show. And, and we spend a lot of time trying to boost what we do and, and, and that, but Ultimately, it really is just about, 
you know, leaving behind ideas and, and, and leaving people better off than where they started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like that. I've, I've been struggling, um, with thinking like, okay, do I, is it the work or do I still kind of want to have the name? Like, I don't like the idea of my name being on a building by any means, but I'm not opposed to people just like, yeah, Ben Rush was a cool guy before. It's something that early on, I almost out of accident, I had shared all of my data and code on the web and, and some of it was just, it made it easier for me to find it. Um, but it led to, uh, some, you know, and of course, most people are like, are you crazy? People are going to steal it. And like, you know, not, you won't get credit for it. And my first thought was like, well, why should I care? Right. Like for the most part, I'm still the one who's going to mine this data and get papers out of it. And that will be enough to get jobs and whatever. And, but if other people can do really great things with this stuff, why not? And it's led to all sorts of collaborations. We run a very open science shop. I do not believe in hoarding data um, and, and code. And, and that's been a really fun part too, just seeing who takes the data. And every once in a while, somebody reaches out to you and say, Hey, I did something really cool. And it ends up to a collaboration, ends up to a publication. And I've certainly have published uh, far more papers and far more insightful papers than I would have if I had just kind of kept all that data to myself. Yeah. And I think the idea that if you're open with your data or collaborations, you are expanding the size of the pie for everybody versus trying to just get your little cut. And most of the time, I think that works out. <laughs> now that we very succinctly got to the present day, um, we're going to head on to our improv game to make sure you can still get out on time. So before I tell you exactly what we're going to do, I need some suggestions from you. So I need, uh, one of your favorite beverages. Favorite beverages is black coffee. Black coffee. You and me both. Okay. And then something fluffy. Uh, pillows. <laughs> pillows. Uh, a scent. A scent. Um, cocoa nibs. <laughs> the scent of cocoa nibs. Very nice. And uh, a powder. Powder. Wow. You know, the first thing to get in my head was anthrax, which maybe is a little bit intense. <laughs> we can go with it if you want. Sure. All right. Yeah, that will backfire. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, so because you, Ankur, spend a lot of time talking about meteorology, um, I felt it would be only natural that we give hypothetical made-up forecasts. And I know you mentioned this is not your specialty, but I think this is what people go to when they think of meteorology. So we will be improvising different weather forecasts uh, for different cities based on your suggestions. So we can have them be about 30 seconds each. Um, and if you're up for it, we can rotate who's like the main reporter and then pitch it off to the next person. So I will go first, which means you have to be the reporter the first time. And then I will have to do a forecast for Madison. Uh, it's raining, but the rain is made of black coffee. Yes, let's do it. All right. So we're out with our uh, Eye in the Sky reporter here, uh, here in beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what the weather is. Pretty uh, strange looking out there, isn't it? 
That's right, Encore. As you can see, there is black stuff dripping down me right now. And even though I have this rain shield and it's supposed to be cold with these rain showers, I am actually feels like I'm, I'm boiling alive slightly because it is raining black coffee. The downside, it's extremely hot. The bright side, I can lift up my mug and feel energized for the rest of the day. It seems like we're going to have these black coffee storms for the next few hours. It might get extremely intense and get a little bit of flooding, but then you can save on your coffee for the next few days. Back to you. Yes, and unfortunately, we don't even know who to sue for if you get burned. So stay safe out there, but enjoy the smells. It's so true. Okay, your job, and I can be the, uh, the, re the reporter that will pass to you. So you are um, getting a snow forecast for Minneapolis, which is fitting. Um, and instead of snow, it's, uh, it's snowing pillows. So no, no water snow. But pillow snow. Okay, back here at Channel 5, we've got this very exciting weather report to give to you. Something that we've never seen before. Encore, could you tell us what's going on? It's pretty wild out here, Ben. We got uh, something that would uh, every middle schooler sleepover party would love to have. Pillows from the sky. Get your pillow fighting gloves out, Twin City residents. There's going to be uh, fluffiness everywhere. And if you're feeling like you just need to lay down, go anywhere you want. It's kind of a pretty, uh, pretty scene out here. It's causing a little bit of havoc on the highways. So uh, I-35 is a little bit jammed up. Uh, people are just uh, getting out of their cars and grabbing as many as they can. I guess we're having an uh, epidemic of people needing uh, better sleep uh, out there. All right. Well, thank you for the report. We will stay tuned. Okay. I'll pass it back to you. You're a reporter. I have to do a report for Atlanta and there are strong winds coming in that are scented of cocoa nibs. Hey there, man. It's another lovely day here in Atlanta, but a lot of us are feeling just a something in the breeze. I can't quite put it, but it is just putting us in the mood to eat What's going on in Atlanta? That's right. Downtown Atlanta, it usually does not smell this great. But for some reason, the beautiful smell of cocoa nibs is in the air. And you can see this in not only all the humans, but it's really bringing in all the wildlife too. Squirrels are hanging out on top of deer, just breathing deeply. Butterflies are landing on people. The birds are starting to tweet and say people's names. And it, I can really only just really make this a testament to how powerful cocoa is to everything. Cocoa is life. I drink too much of it already, but I still can't get enough. And, you know, Uncle, you should just leave the desk right now and come join me. There's a bear that's laying down. He's offered me to just like the pillows, just lay down and take a good nap. Uh, and it's really quite the sight to see. Yeah, those those uh, pillows we heard are coming in from this uh, cold front from the northwest, maybe from Minnesota. But I'll be out there soon with my uh, marshmallows and graham crackers. Uh, over to you. <laughs> Sounds good. And our last one. You could choose whether you want to do this or not. <laughs> um, so this is a weather uh, forecast for San Francisco with a dust storm made of anthrax. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you can totally pass on this one. Um, 
It's okay. It has a climate apocalypse kind of feel to it. Yes. This is science fiction. It's science fiction. That's right. Okay. Channel 5 here, and we have some grim news. The sky is pitch black. There's red lightning everywhere. Tornadoes and somehow simultaneously huge storm surges. It seems like it's going to be the end of everything. But we've got our last remaining meteorologist out in the field to tell us the final blow to perhaps all of humanity. And it's, it's, I can't even begin to tell you how it's going out here, standing out here, looking over the bay. Folks, we've had it all out here in the past. Forest fires, earthquakes, days on end of cold fog. This has got nothing on it, folks. This is the end, but I'm out here to report for those of you who are still breathing. Shut your windows, folks. There is a typhoon of anthrax coming in off the Pacific. We don't know where it's coming from, how it got there, but folks, this is it. And yeah, uh, oh, no, uh, goodbye. Save the weather. Well, there you have it. San Francisco Channel 5, the first live broadcast of one of our meteorologists perishing. He was a good man. He was a good man. Um, and now I can see the windows are starting to bellow here. And I will sign off for the last time. <laughs> Take care, San Francisco. That was grim. <laughs> it was a grim. It's very grim ending. Um, but I liked it. That was, it was good to stick to your, your guns in there, uh, your gut. And it's just a lot of imagination. Not, not all improv has to be happy. Well, it's been a blast chatting with you. And really, this has flown by. Um, I'm glad that I looked at the clock to realize, like, oh, we need to get to the game. So it was really fun to learn about you. I thank you for hanging out and dealing with the tech. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thanks. It looks like it's going to be a beautiful one. Uh, we may have some showers later this uh, evening, but uh, after that, it uh, looks like some nice, cool fall weather. So, yes, go out and enjoy it. No anthrax. Yeah, there's your weather forecast, yeah. It's yeah. your weather forecast. Pillows and cocoa are okay. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I'm not sure about you, listener, but I, for one, am glad that there aren't anthrax tsunamis. And don't you think about creating them either. I'm on to you. If you dig the podcast, tell your friends. Send them a link and follow up. It's helped many of my graduate student friends through tough times, and it can help your friends as well. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush, marketing by Jeff Lorty, and editing website development by Julia Nepper. cold. I don't want to sneeze in. I don't want to cough. I don't want to use toilet paper as my mode of collecting of mucus from my nose. One day I'll be over it, but that day is not today. That day, that day certainly is not today. Governor?